everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Excuse Me While I Organize with Indira Washington and Hayes Taylor, a podcast centered around building solidarity and movements for liberation. Today we'll be discussing the People's Plaza Movement. The People's Plaza Movement is a movement in uh, Nashville, Tennessee that was created after the deaths of George Floyd and Daniel Hamburg. A group of organizers set out to occupy the plaza in front of the state capitol where the statue of Edward Carmack once stood, renaming it the Ida B. Wells Plaza. So Edward Carmack was this newspaper owner who was known for his support of lynching. He was super racist, and when Ida B. Wells, who is from Memphis, Tennessee, spoke out against one of his lynchings, he incited a riot against her. Oddly enough, I was actually able to witness in person the removal of Carmack's statue during a Black Lives Matter protest, which was crazy. And I had no idea that like an amazing movement was about to be created afterwards. So the People's Plaza movement actually occupied Ida B. Wells Plaza 24 hours a day for 62 days straight. And it was this really big multiracial, multi-generational community space. Their goals were to defund the police, demilitarize, the police remove confederate symbols across the state even one of the kkk founder named bedford forest which is actually in the tennessee capitol building which is crazy because (laughs) who wants to keep um a bust of nathan bedford forest in the state capitol even though it should have been a small issue um, rather than meet with protesters governor bill lee attempted to sweep the protests under the rug by using troopers to brutalize protesters by raiding their camp make arrests for trivial things and spent massive amounts of tax dollars on overtime wages and transportation costs for those state troopers. So a local newspaper, The Tennessean, talks about Tennessee legislature passing these bills that are not only anti-protest but anti-houseless, which make overnight camping on state property a felony. The, the sentence is up to six years in prison, and it strips those convicted of the right to vote and to carry weapons, which obviously goes against our First and Second Amendment rights. And even though the movement faced like massive opposition from the state legislator and all levels of the executive branch, the movement's continuous efforts were actually rewarded in July by a vote by the State Capitol Commission to request a waiver from the Tennessee Historical Commission to move the Confederate monuments from the Capitol to museums. However, the final vote will not take place until February 2021, and it still faces massive opposition from the state legislator. So... Despite being anti-protest towards Black Lives Matter, um, GOP state rep Terry Lynn Weaver actually attended and supported the insurrection on January 6th in Washington, D.C., and went on to describe the event as absolutely epic and historic. So goes to show she's not anti-protest, she's anti-Black Lives Matter protest. Adding to this anti-protest narrative, and particularly anti-Black Lives Matter protest, Governor Bill Lee spent over $800,000 in overtime wages for state troopers in June alone, and then in July he spent almost a million dollars on the same overtime wages, all to defend a piece of concrete that is public property anyway. In addition, Governor Lee refuses to use any of the almost a billion dollars of SNAP money specifically set aside for people in need during a pandemic. 
Yeah, because Tennessee is still one of the biggest hotspots, not just in the U.S., but for a while it was the worst transmission site in the world. So not only do they have like a huge lack of restrictions, they have no statewide MAC mandate, but there's other states like Kentucky where their governor decided to use their rainy day funds to provide COVID payments, not just for people who need continuous support, but he specifically wanted to use the funds for people who didn't get help the first time. Are the People's Plaza movement? pushed a message loud enough to be heard outside of Tennessee. Stark contrast between the state's response to the movement and the state's response to its own official, elected official participating in a plot to dismiss election results demonstrates the normalization of right-wing ideology in Tennessee government. To discuss the future of the movement and what it means for Tennessee, here are our panelists. First up, we have Janelle Christopher, who is a Fisk University alumni who studied political science, a Nashville activist, and one of the original organizers of the People's Plaza Movement. Next, we have Jama Muhammad, who's a youth program coordinator for the Disabilities Coalition, a freelance filmmaker, and a big-time Nashville activist. And that last, but definitely not least, we have Emily Raggedon, who's a Vanderbilt graduate student who studies philosophy and one of the primary organizers for the People's Plaza Movement. How's it going, y'all? Doing really good. Glad to be on here. Thank you for inviting us to talk about some of the things that we experienced um, organizing the People's Plaza. I'm going to go ahead and kick us off with our first question. And I think this is probably on like a lot of people's minds. Irrespective of the results of the vote in February on like the actual removal of the bust, I feel like Governor Lee's violent opposition to y'all speaks volumes to the normalization of right-wing politics in Tennessee. How do you guys see the future of organizing against such a normalization? I think one of the first things that comes to mind with organizing in the future is I think a lot of people in Nashville understand the resources available to do more direct, aggressive, direct action. And I think there's a there's more willingness right now to at least lay some of the more like ground groundwork, some of the more foundational work and working through and advocating for policy that, that makes the lives better for people here. Um, We've already mentioned a little bit the violent anti-protest stance that the Tennessee government took against you guys when you guys were protesting peacefully in the People's Plaza. What is your reaction to State Representative Terrilyn Weaver's presence at the January 9th insurrection at the Capitol? Yeah, I think to me it was just very shocking and overwhelming to say the least, just watching it live and seeing all the pictures and how they were almost occupying or they were occupying the capital um, of the country for hours before the police responded with um, things that they responded to with protests within minutes. And so I I wasn't surprised, I guess, because the most of the people in the capital were white, but it was it was definitely heartbreaking just to like think about those times in jail or to think about those times that like we saw like other people protesting with us that were brutalized. And we were in peaceful protests, not like breaking windows or looting or like rioting, but um, in peaceful protests. And like the response was so much more forceful. Hey, just to kind of just jump back to the last part of that question. It was just wild to see like how quickly blue lives did not matter. They're literally up out there throwing hands. And you're like, how are these people like literally having a whole fist fight with police out here people were arrested for just like sitting down you know being just being present at the plaza and it was it is super disheartening 
to watch? So one of the things that I heard a lot around the insurrection movement was the former chief of the Capitol Police kept saying that they weren't violent because they were trying to do better after responding so violently during the Black Lives Matter protests. Do you think that do you think that that might have helped things or inspired other forces to look at protests differently, which kind of led to the blow up point at the Capitol? I want to say no, just because I think that the Capitol is a federal building that is heavily guarded on any regular day. And I just feel that if the protesters were of any other race or ethnicity or color or, you know, they were advocating for different issues or issues that were against the police. I don't think that they went in there to fight the police, but that was the outcome being that they were still guarding the building. But I believe that the police during Black Lives Matter protests saw Black Lives Matter protesters as their opposition and as people that were coming there to fight them, to take their jobs, to like take their way of living. And so I I don't think that they did it to be kind or like to take the moral route at all. I definitely think it's interesting how they have covered the police officer who was beat to death, but also the so many others who were severely injured, who were kind of talked about for a little bit. And then it's like, oh, well, that's just a part of free speech. In the intro, we mentioned the nearly $2 million that Governor Lee spent on overtime wages for state troopers who brutalized protesters throughout the People's Plaza movement. What do you guys think this did for public narrative? Part of me feels like it demonstrated the white supremacy that is very evident in the police budget, but at the same time, I'm not quite sure that the public was able to perceive that because not everybody was at the plaza and not everybody was able to have access to the same news sources that covered the plaza in a positive way. I think it did both. Um, I think, you know, it definitely demonstrated Governor Bill B's and the legislature's priorities about how, where a lot of the, uh, especially, and just in the general broader picture, where a lot of police funding goes into really, you know, to policing and targeting nonviolent behavior and black and brown bodies um, causes Black Lives Matter. But at the same time, there is still a lot of work to be done in educating ourselves and the public about where the money goes and into what causes and where it doesn't. It's just as importantly, what isn't being funded, school, education, you know, housing, affordable housing, et cetera. In Tennessee, they have a surplus of SNAP money, right? So we have like a $730 million surplus in uh, benefit, like federal funds that are supposed to go to people, like needy families for like food assistance, childcare, all this stuff. And to see that pot of money grow during a pandemic while they're blowing money on us at the plaza was, it really shows where their priorities are at. Overall, how do you guys feel about Cooper's management, not only of you know, police violence against Black people, but the consistent violence of, you know, the gentrification of downtown or whatever other form of violence against people affected. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that Mayor Cooper hasn't done his job as well as he could have during this time. And in regards to the movement, um, I think that the reason that he got the pushback is because during a time like this, when um, the police are killing Black people, Um, without having any accountability. There were, you know, a lot of people in the community and Black organizers who stepped up to try to create a commission um, to be able to oversee the police or the Metro Police Department. 
but I know that Mayor Cooper decided not to not to recognize them for a very long time and like created his own board of people who he felt should oversee the police. And so I know that that um, is why the community pushed back a lot, just because he wasn't trying to be as building or trying to work with people. Well, Jama, you also wanted to circle back around to the question regarding like white supremacy and its normalization in the state legislature. Do you have any specific people in specific instances you want to talk about? Uh, there were definitely a couple where um, we had one lawmaker. His name was Joey Hensley. Uh, one of the days of the plaza, people were in the street and he tried to drive through and run over some of the protesters. And later we find out that this is the same guy that was found guilty of ethics violations for prescribing his uh, subordinate nurse slash cousin that he was also smashing opiates and he can no longer practice medicine in the state of Tennessee for the next three years. And it's like these people, we got people like that, that won re-election by 60 percentage points or something crazy like that, like 65,000 votes, 70,000 votes. It's okay for them to just act with impunity wherever, however they want at any time. It's very disheartening to see the normalization of that type of violence and disregard for law and anything, really. My follow-up question to that is, how do you communicate with an electorate that tolerates such gross abuses of power? At what point does banging your subordinate cousin nurse <laughs> become too much, even if it does protect the white supremacist power structure. It's, it's crazy to me. And then he, the fact that he's reelected, you know, like these are allegations that are, you know, coming to light and he is being in the middle of, you know, reelection. And those are the type of people that are there right now. You know, we had Steve Dickerson that was also involved in Medicaid fraud. Dudes are getting raided by the FBI. It's like, how do we expect them to actually give a fuck about the people when they're really out for themselves? Did the Medicaid fraud have anything to do with the federal money that Tennessee rejected that could have gone toward like matching state funds for Medicaid? So they rejected Medicaid expansion and then submitted a block grant waiver, which basically would be Instead of the federal government matching $4 for every dollar that we spend or some, some, it's some type of matching, we get a capped amount of money based off of how many people are currently on Medicaid in the state. And uh, then Tennessee can do whatever we want with that money. So that really limits the stuff that we can do with our Medicaid program. And really, you could have just expanded Medicaid and got more money in without having to like try to do all this finessing. Basically, they're trying to find savings in a program where, why are you looking for savings here? Like there's not none to be had. We have one of the worst ones in the the country. I think it's pretty incredible that so many different states rejected life-saving healthcare for their people because it was attached to the name Obama. Even though it wasn't like, wasn't all that radical, wasn't all that hardcore left, it was just attached to his name. So they were like, we're not gonna help the people. Same thing with the COVID relief. Anytime it reaches across the table and becomes a bipartisan issue or they can in any way tie it to socialism, it's automatically mixed, which is incredible and calls into question why people are calling for unity with people who will kill people. Yeah. I think that circles back around to kind of your question earlier is about why people keep voting for people who prescribe their subordinate 
cousin affair partners, opioids, because, you know, they even, I'm not, you know, I don't necessarily, I'm not in that district, so I don't know, necessarily know how like widespread that was, but even if, you know, how widespread um, like that news was, but even if it is, it's kind of like seeing that R next to his name on the ballot, they, it's kind of an automatic, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter that he did all those things. People think, oh, that's better than the Democrats who are going to turn us all to socialists. Obviously, I don't think that, but that kind of the stereotypes, I think that kind of circles back around to why certain people keep getting elected. It's not even the people, it's really the party and this kind of ideology that clung to. I definitely agree. I feel like we saw that here a lot. And um, when our governor Kemp decided to take the Atlanta mayor Keisha Longbottom to court over the mask mandate, it really just ends up being party plays and these weird symbolism things instead of humans who need help. I do think, you know, we have to connect it back to this kind of vested interest and protection in whiteness mm-hmm. that these voters are protecting and kind of, especially Ibrahim Rakita Flat Bradshaw, sorry, and kind of just, I do wonder something. Not, I don't wonder. Like her blackness obviously did play a part in her not getting elected. I mean, we are in a red state, but still, I think have to still consider that and just this people, you know, aligning with um, the insurrectionists at the Capitol, kind of seeing that as you know, seeing the whiteness there as even more compelling than, you know, their professed Blue Lives Matter sentiments. And to, to piggyback off that, they ran, I mean, even with the Warnock and Ossoff thing, right? So I was watching, I watched those debates between Loeffler and Warnock and Ossoff and Purdue, and they ran the same playbook that Bill Haggerty ran here as like the specter of like socialism. But at the same time, there's like this weird duality where they're out here pushing for this $2,000 and they see that grassroots populism like, hey, we, it's America first. We need to look out for ourselves first. But at any chance they get, they will, you know, vote against themselves. But I think that to see some radical change, it's, but overall, it's, it's not enough. They're more willing to fall back on this uh, whiteness and the upholding of these power structures than what's good for all Americans. And they see anyone else coming up as a threat to uh, their place in society, which is a huge issue. I just think that um, one of the most disingenuous comments I've seen, even from the Democratic Party during all of this, is that this is some sort of new thing because they feel it's suddenly overt instead of covert. This is the exact same reason why the party switched platforms 100 years ago. Like nothing has changed. And I think that's the most important thing to focus on here. Like we've had all this change and we're still like my grandpa is saying he sees stuff that he saw when he was 10 now like that kind of just drives home like yes there has been important change but also it's not enough and going back to the normal pre-Trump stuff is also not enough for people anymore. Ossoff struggled here and he's arguably not to the left at all so really seeing a rejection of even the most mild form of the left is I mean that definitely says something about how far right-wing radicalization is gone. I definitely agree um I think that though that points to bigger issue a bigger kind of structural issue and I know we have talked a lot about electoral politics and definitely the people's plaza has been 
fairly involved in, you know, talking with elected representatives and pointing out flaws um, and just awful awfulness of some representatives. But I think it also goes beyond to kind of show, you know, we, especially when we're talking about organizing on the left, we can't just rely on electoral politics. We have to rely on ourselves um, and kind of thinking about other outside the box um, and even kind of thinking more policy-wide, you know, a lot of these things. It, I do think a lot, of, obviously we have to push pe- certain people left, but, you know, it, Martha Blackburn died tomorrow. We'd probably ju- vote in just someone just as, or, or even more conservative. So even kind of focusing beyond that, but really I think even past the electoral politics, really going, you know, working in our communities at the local level, there's so much local policy that, you know, dictates people's lives and, you know, just meeting day-to-day material needs, kind of doing that um, work is just as important. What would the People's Plaza movement like to see coming forward? Obviously, we have like mutual aid and stuff like that, but given COVID, what are the main goals of the movement moving forward? Um, I think, you know, that's kind of up in the air right now. We've definitely taken this time, especially also because we are COVID conscious, we've taken this time to regroup. We definitely are looking into organizing with other groups that have already existed in Nashville and are doing great work. Definitely, you know, still focusing on that electoral work and just in general getting people registered to vote has been a focus of ours. Obviously, the mutual aid work, um, kind of as well as just consciousness raising, awareness raising, educating ourselves along this journey. So I think that's where our focus is now. With that, we are out of time. Janelle, Jama, Emily, thank you guys so much for joining us on the first ever episode of Excuse Me While I Organize. Before we go, where can listeners find you guys? We're on Instagram and Facebook at the People's Plaza TN. My personal Instagram is Janelle Christopher. And we also have a website, um, also peoplesplazatn.com, um, where we're working on updating that with what we're Um, some work that we're going to continue doing, especially uh, mutual aid work, as well as upcoming protests um, and organizing. Um, I know we're organizing, um, hopefully, to show up to the the court case of the murder of Daniel Hambrick, who was murdered by a police officer, um, Andrew Delkey, here, uh, to really support the Hambrick family in that. I am Young TV at Young TV on Instagram with two underscores between Young Y-U-N-G TV. Lord, you going fucking ghost.